there's a public misunderstanding about what experts can and cannot do and what expert knowledge actually is. Expert knowledge is not like a crystal ball that you can look into and then tell people what they have to do. Welcome to Thunder Off Script, a podcast for lovers of freedom. It's Sunday, 6th November, 2022. Today, I'd like to share an in-depth interview I did with Pierre Galaz on 21st September, looking back at the public response to COVID-19. In that interview, we discussed a wide range of topics, including the ethics of vaccine mandates, the importance of trusting citizens during a public crisis, the vital importance of individualized, patient-centered healthcare, the revolution in pandemic management, the slide toward tyranny, and what citizens can now do to protect their freedoms. Uh, Thank you for accepting uh, our invitation. You are a university lecturer and a researcher in moral, political, and social philosophy. You're currently a permanent research fellow at the Institute for Culture and Society in the Navarra University in Pamplona, Spain. You have a presence on Substack, YouTube, several other platforms as well. And all of your work is linked on your website, www.davidthunder.com. And you also recently became a father. So congratulations. Thank you very much. Uh, Was this the first time? Yes, first time father. Yeah. Unforgettable moments. Yes, a little girl. Her name is Clara. What else would you want our viewers to know about you? I have a passion for freedom and all of my research and all of my media engagement has something to do with human freedom. You know, all of it has to do with um, what it means to live a free, uh, as a free human being. And um, and for me, freedom and flourishing or well-being are intimately connected. Uh, you cannot live a flourishing life as a human being unless you are free. Um, and freedom without living flour- a flourishing life is also quite empty. I mean, uh, if you spend your time picking blades of grass, Technically, you might be free, but that's not uh, the fullest expression of human freedom. Yeah, so that's that's my passion, and that's what I devote myself to in my research. Which is why your blog is called the Freedom Blog. Exactly. Hmm. Makes sense. I'm very much a lover of freedom myself, so uh, uh, I can't wait to hear uh, what your insights will be about what we are all experiencing right now. You wrote on many different topics in the past two years regarding the pandemic and whatever happened around the pandemic. And it was not easy for me to pick a starting point. Um, The one I finally decided to choose is one of your blog posts and also a a short video uh, back in January this year, which really made a strong impression on me. Um, You wrote a Substack post entitled are Western democracies on the brink of regime change? Uh, And I want to quote from it. Unless we see a major course correction... Unless we see a major course correction, we are heading in the direction of a new type of regime characterized by a much more intrusive style of governance, a more far-reaching surveillance and police state, and a more half-hearted utilitarian attitude to civil rights. To me, this was an eye-opener because I could feel, as I guess many others did, um, that something was going on, something uh, that was different from what used to be happening and definitely something was going wrong in our Western liberal democracies. Um, but I could not pinpoint exactly what it was. There were just a few scattered observations here and there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and you, you really put precise words on what was just an overall bad feeling for me. Mm. Um, you outlined five different components, and maybe you, 
you will add another one. I don't know as things are evolving since January. Uh, the five components of this direction towards a new type of regime. The first one, the turn to surveillance and control. A turn toward ever more intrusive forms of surveillance and control over our private choices. How we behave at home, what we wear on our faces, where we eat and drink, what substances we put into our bodies. Second, the turn to highly collectivized notions of social responsibility. The idea that individual choices affecting others must be coercively determined by public officials acting in the name of the collective rather than left up to personal discretion and choice. Third, the heavy-handed use of censorship, mostly by private companies like Google, Twitter and Facebook, directed at anyone who seriously questions official sources of information. Fourth, the relentless use of mass media to inculcate fear and terror in the population, softening them up for emergency measures. Fifth, the watering down or outright suspension of civil rights, allegedly to protect some public interest. This shift towards a surveillance state, towards a more controlling and intrusive state, is something that doesn't necessarily manifest itself in constant surveillance, 24-hour surveillance at every moment of the year. It's, it's more this sense that now we have crossed a threshold um, in which these sorts of measures are speakable, are thinkable, and um, can be introduced into a conversation without shocking people. And um, the reason I say that we may be shifting towards a new regime is because the sorts of changes we saw during the pandemic were sufficiently radical that they put in question the basic assumptions of a liberal regime, right? So, I mean, you can have superficial changes um, like policies and laws that maybe some people don't like, but basically fit within the framework of liberal democracy. They respect basic liberties and rights. But we got into a political space during the pandemic in which, in which um, public officials spoke quite light, lightly and easily about confining people to their homes, healthy people to their homes, um, healthy and law-abiding people to their homes. They, they spoke quite freely about closing churches for many, many months on end, um, prohibiting worship for many months on end. They spoke quite easily and freely about putting um, vaccine passes in restaurants and coffee shops and retail outlets, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, it just it, it it was very shocking to me, and the conclusion I drew from that was that was that we um, well well that we may be shifting towards a new paradigm of civil order. Um, and, and, and those features, those symptoms that I pointed to are features of that new regime, which is basically a more, uh, dictatorial regime. It's a more, um, top-down regime. Uh, it's a regime in which there's less room for freedom, especially for personal freedom. And I think in order for listeners to understand what I have in mind, I think it's perhaps useful to think about the Chinese Communist Party and to think about what freedom means in China and what it means to, let's just say, what type of regime they have in China, the degree of social control, population control, um, control over individual choice, and this, the degree of censorship that goes on in China. I think it's really important to understand that the way liberal democracies have functioned for generations is that we uh, trust individual citizens to do uh, the best they can to um, honor their responsibilities towards their fellow citizens, not to steal, to be honest in their work, um, you know, to, to think about public health when they act. And, um, and it's, this is very important because 
it makes the regime more functional because it requires less intervention. It's less costly because when you trust citizens to do the right thing, you inspire them to do the right thing as well because they feel trusted. During the pandemic, we made this weird shift where suddenly, against all of the public health guidelines that were in place and the pandemic protocols that were in place, we suddenly decided that citizens could not be trusted to act responsibly in the context of an infectious disease. And therefore, we needed this top-down technocratic control coercively imposed on citizens to make sure they behaved properly. A useful way to think about it is to compare uh, the 2020 pandemic with past responses to pandemics in Western democracies. Um, And basically in the past, when there was an infectious disease that posed a significant threat to public health and to hospitals, what uh, the approach that was taken was to provide citizens with counsel, with advice. So citizens were advised to reduce their social contacts. They would be advised to wash their hands. They would be advised to avoid certain kinds of very large and intense indoor social reunions um, and so on. And, And if they were at risk, then they would be advised simply to be careful uh, about their social, how they socialize, and so on. Um, and certainly, uh, if there was medication involved, it would be purely advisory. Uh, they would say, you could take this medication if you're sick, and so on. And, um, and so what happened then was that we were told, essentially, that, uh, that instead of advising us to be careful to be responsible in our social behavior um, and to take appropriate medication. We were ordered to stay inside our home. We were ordered uh, with the threat of police intervention not to have guests in our homes. And we were ordered with the threat of job loss or fines um, or the inability to travel to take a vaccine. So it's it's a paradigm change. Um, and it was not contemplated by, for example, the WHO uh, 2019 pandemic guidelines for flu pandemics. And in no point in that guidelines did they suggest that you could confine people to their homes involuntarily. Um, so, so I think, I hope those examples illustrate what I'm talking about. Yes, um, I was thinking uh, about the topic that I wanted to talk about later on, but I think it makes sense to introduce it now because uh, what you're saying is that those measures were, of course, illiberal uh, in nature, mm. uh, but they were also unscientific in that the previous guidelines um, about how to deal with the pandemic uh, did not uh, imply that they, they, they would be needed. Um, uh, so something happened that made yes. these measures um, actually applicable in a situation where they were not supposed to be applied. And I think um, in a, f- a presentation and also in uh, several of your um, blog posts, you talked about the role played by experts. Hmm. Uh, and in a way, uh, my understanding is that experts uh, allowed the governments to hide behind their expertise uh, and to uh, make uh, these measures more palatable to to the population, so maybe uh, uh, maybe it's the right time to talk about them because that's uh, part of the explanation for why it happened. Yes, absolutely. So um, first of all, I'd say that one of the important moments in the pandemic was when Professor Neil Ferguson in the United Kingdom. Uh, essentially put forward projections, right? Mathematical projections. Um, to the eff- And the effect of these projections basically was to say that if strong non-pharmaceutical interventions were not used, that is to say, if the population was not locked down, if there was not a strong intervention, then up to... 500,000 
citizens or people would could die in the space of approximately i think 6 months that was the projection he made now if you look at what happened in sweden where there was no lockdown a fraction of that number actually uh, we find when we look at excess mortality or covid related deaths um which are not exactly the same thing but basically if we look at either covid attributed deaths or excess mortality excess mortality is more reliable then uh, we see that in sweden in the absence of a lockdown only a fraction of of that uh, half a million you know correcting for population of course only a, fra- a fraction of that amount of people died in those in in that period uh, that neil ferguson was projecting so what can we deduce from this we could deduce that experts contributed towards alarmism you know in their projections and governments uh, the uk government did a u turn on its pandemic policies immediately after neil ferguson's projection so that projection was a catalyst that pushed the uk government to reverse its policy of being kind of basically traditional approach of being a, a light touch approach advising citizens supporting them etc um so what happened there what happened there was that uh was that i think in some ways experts uh perhaps allow themselves to be used politically and they allowed their opinions to be uh let's say to be put to a certain use uh that was not appropriate um uh, because expert opinion is often very uncertain and um it may be informed by very incomplete data and the assumptions it makes may turn out to be false especially in a mathematical model right so i mean um if you for example underestimate overestimate infection fatality rates then you're going to uh assume a much larger burden of mortality as a real possibility or even as a probability so um now on the one hand i'd say experts by putting forward their views with such confidence um that were often very speculative and were not properly informed were not adequately informed they allowed themselves to be played and they allowed themselves their views to be used to legitimate very harsh and draconian social interventions on the other hand i'd also say that some experts at least did try to carefully qualify what they were saying they did try to say that there's a lot of uncertainty about what they're saying but i think they were somewhat politically naive about how this would be received i mean if you say to publicly uh, that half a million citizens could die if we don't lock down citizens are not going to pick up on the fact that this is just a possibility and it's not necessarily very probable they're just going to think if we don't lock down lots of people will die that's what they'll think um and i think uh, the the last thing i'd say about experts is that really um there's a part of the problem is there's a public misunderstanding about what experts can and cannot do and what expert knowledge actually is expert knowledge is not like a crystal ball that you can look into and then tell people what they have to do um there are many many intervening steps between a prediction of what might happen under certain situation or circumstances versus say uh as you know a directive that you stay at home or that you stop working uh because the latter is a question of prudence in which many many variables have to be weighed weighed including the uh, collateral harms to the economy and to health and um i think in some ways the use of expert knowledge by governments was so simplistic so reductive because they simply presented uh opinions largely out of context uh without uh without acknowledging that the ultimate decision about what to do is an extremely complex prudential decision that is not decided by mathematics 
and is not decided by science as such. It's decided by prudence or good sense. And science is not the same as prudence or good sense, at least empirical science um, and mathematical science and medical science is not the same as prudence. So I think we made a jump from fairly, let's say, uh, one-dimensional analysis that just tells us if we do X, Y might follow, to suddenly saying, therefore, you have to do X, right? Uh, when there's so many other complex variables that you have to put into the, into the equation. And just as one example, um, when you say that people should isolate and stay at home, uh, just think about the potential implications for public health of confining people to their homes. One, they do less exercise, which is good for your health. Uh, two, they have less social contact, which actually exacerbates depression. Three, by isolating people in their homes who are vulnerable to abuse, those people are going to be more vulnerable to abuse because they have no escape, um, which happened. There was a spike in abuse. Um, and, and then what about people who need to work and have an income? Their income drops. And so there are all sorts of economic implications. And when people are impoverished, their health often can go down as well, according to economists. So all of these collateral harms are just rushed aside uh, with a simplistic prediction based on limited variables. And that's what happened. There was a simplification, an oversimplification of expert knowledge. Well, the, the only piece that I think uh, might be missing uh, is that some experts were put forward and others were violently attacked because uh, some experts were really strongly advising against the, the harsher measures because of the potential harms that they entailed, uh, and yet they were, they were not silenced. They were ignored and, and criticized. You, you have experts with credentials, a very high age index, many publications under their name, and they were not being listened to as much as experts with uh, much lower uh, academic credentials, um, which were much more prominently featured by the media at the time. So there is some sort of a mystery for me, um, because seniority and uh, um, age index uh, didn't seem to play a role in who what kind of experts uh, were given a voice uh, by the media at the time? I agree. And I think that the selective use of experts and indeed the censorship and suppression of expert opinion that one does not like uh, played a big role in making it appear that there was a consensus. Um, there was no consensus. Um, I think that probably uh, certainly... Among those who expressed opinions um, and who, let's say, were scientists or medical scientists, it's probably true that a majority of them favored harsh interventions. I mean, that's, I think that's probably true. But there was a substantial minority of very well-qualified people who, you know, who were opposed to um, very heavy-handed interventions. Let's turn to the other point, um, the second one, which is the turn to highly collectivized notions of social responsibility. Um, so what did you mean by that? And uh, what is some of the evidence that it happened um, during the pandemic time? So um, an example would be under communism, so, for example, under, under communism, people who uh, the communist leadership will decide what your job will be. They will allocate your job based on their idea of efficiency and justice. OK, so they've taken that choice out of your hands and they've put it in a collective committee. Right. So that, that they will decide where you work, how many hours you work, how much you get paid, etc. It's a simple example to illustrate what collectivization of responsibility means. Now, um, in the context of the pandemic, basically, this applied to uh, various aspects of, let's say, how we conduct ourselves in order to reduce the impact of infectious disease. Um, 
So previously, this was considered in the domain largely of individual responsibility. Uh, for example, how you conduct your social life, how many guests you have in your home, whether you receive this or that medication, um, uh, whether you work from home remotely or work uh, you know, uh, in, in the office or wherever you work. All of these choices were considered to be part of personal responsibility, um, but suddenly they were transferred into the hands of experts who would act in the name of the collective. Um, so the idea of collectivization is a bit of a, in a way, it's a euphemism because when we say something is collective, what we really mean is that it's an elite group that will decide for the collective, for everybody. So it becomes a question of elite control of our choices. Um, there's no such thing as a collective choice. It's rare to have a collective choice that's literally the choice of everybody. Um, I mean, maybe if you had a, if you ran a referendum and had a vote, um, especially if it was a very big majority in the, in the outcome and the result, you might be able to say it was a collective choice of the people at large. But in the context of a pandemic, when we talk about collective responsibility, um, when that's collectivized, what I'm referring to is when it's taken out of the hands of individual citizens and it's placed in the hands of rulers, experts, elites who will decide on behalf of everybody. And what is the problem with that? They don't see... There are two problems. One is that it, uh, it basically reduces, drastically reduces the sphere of individual freedom. Right. And, and the other problem is that it is hubristic because it assumes that these committees, these experts will have access to the type of knowledge they need to direct individual choice. Um, and that's that sort of knowledge they cannot have because, as certain economists like Friedrich Hayek pointed out, knowledge is dispersed. Uh, human knowledge is widely dispersed. Like th there are certain kinds of considerations that can be seen on the ground, but won't be immediately seen from a high level. Um, so depression, loneliness, for example, if somebody is sitting at home and they're, they're feeling suicidal, they're feeling depressed, you, but you, you say it's a recommendation that people reduce social contact and if possible, stay at home. It's a recommendation. That person who's feeling suicidal will realize I absolutely need to see someone and they will, maybe they'll, you know, listen to the recommendation and they'll say, you know what? My life is valuable enough in my health that I'm going to visit my friend, right? That's because they make a prudential judgment call um, but imagine if they see their police that are you know uh, pr pr uh, patrolling their neighborhood to see if they could catch people who are uh, moving between homes or between uh, between out in the street they might very well stay at home because they're feeling coerced to stay at home and therefore they're not enabled to make a good informed judgment their informed judgment is displaced by the uninformed judgment of an expert or a bureaucrat. Yeah, I think um, uh, this collectivized, uh, centralized uh, notion of social responsibility um, also implied strongly that those who were not acting uh, in the way, in the socially responsible way, uh, were openly vilified by political leaders and experts. Um, and of course, the main area of tension was around uh, vaccination, vaccine passports, uh, mandatory vaccination. Um, and in particular, I, I was really, and I guess many people were shocked by uh, the strong words used against the unvaccinated by, by various world leaders. Mm. And I would like to remind a few of what I heard uh, and mm. shocked me at the time. So uh, Justin Trudeau, which uh, I think it was 
in French on, on Quebec, Quebec TV, and he was speaking in French. Um, do we tolerate à la vaccination? Qui sont pas dans la science, qui sont souvent souvent racistes aussi. C'est un, un, un petit groupe, mais qui prend de la place. Et là, il faut faire un choix en tant que leader, en tant que pays. Est-ce qu'on est qu tolère ces gens-là? I guess anyone who saw images from the truckers' demonstration uh, knows that racism was not particularly present in these demonstrations. But uh, okay, that was Trudeau. It was already very shocking. Um, President Biden, a dark winter... Unvaccinated. We are looking at a winter of severe illness and death for unvaccinated. For themselves, their families, and the hospitals, they'll soon overwhelm. Uh, Yacinda Ardern from New Zealand, uh, the prime minister there, asked whether the introduction, she was asked, whether the introduction of a vaccine passport would create two unequal classes of citizen. And she proudly, matter-of-factly replied, yep, that's what it is. So you basically said this is going to be like, well, it's almost like, I, you probably don't see it like this, the two different classes of people, if you're vaccinated or if you're unvaccinated, you have all these rights. If you are vaccinated, that is what it is. So, yep, yep. And I kept the best for last uh, as the last one. Yeah, the last one is my is my favorite because I think it is the worst. Um, Macron, who said, and I will say it in French because all the English translations are actually euphemisms for what mm. he actually said. Yes, I agree. Um, un irresponsable n'est pas un citoyen. Les non-vaccinés, j'ai très envie de les emmerder. Uh, Macron's statement inspired a very strong reaction from you uh, in the form of an open letter. Could you explain how it happened and why it was important for you to write that, yes. that letter? I'd just like to, uh, for my English-speaking listeners, I, I'd like to just quickly uh, uh, translate that, that, that in full, what he said there. So as you said, um, an irresponsible... Uh, person is not a citizen. The unvaccinated, um, I really feel like making their lives shit. Okay, that's how I would translate that. Now, um, I really feel like making their lives shit. Um, also could be translated, I really feel like effing up their lives. Um, I really want to piss them off, etc. I'm sorry for the language, but this is This is important. It's important to get the context and the tone. I mean, this, this is strong. In French, this is a strong thing to say about a section of the population. Um, and, and so why did I write an open letter to Macron? Um, obviously, it would never be read by him, but uh, I wanted to make a point. It was because I felt he'd crossed a line. I felt that he had really uh, dishonored his office. You know, um, you know, a republic, the French Republic, what does that represent? Um, I think it represents the idea that all citizens have a place in that society. Um, that's one really important idea of, of, of republicanism and of, I think, even of French republicanism, which has its own flavor. Um, this idea of equal standing, each citizen has equal standing. And... Uh, just because a citizen is black, just because a citizen is Catholic or Jewish, um, does not give any leader the right to consider them as second class or as less worthy or less responsible. And what Macron did was he essentially suggested, uh, he basically said that if you do not receive a COVID vaccine, you are not worthy of French citizenship. You are a defective citizen. You are an irresponsible citizen. And basically, you don't deserve to have an equal place in the Republic. This is essentially what the implication of what he's saying is, because as the president, he's saying, I feel like really messing up your life, making your life uh, insufferable. Um, So it's almost as if he's treating them like traitors or like you would a terrorist or somebody who is just basically involved in gross public disorder. Um, now, uh, 
this is problematic on so many levels. Uh, first of all, even if he disagreed with their choice, even if he thought that they were not making the best choice, uh, to publicly say, as a head of state, to, to publicly say that basically uh, he wanted to screw up their lives is basically to incite hatred against them. It, uh, you know, I understand that uh, hate, hate speech and incitement to hatred are terms that are often abused and misused um, just to make political, to score political points. I've been looking for examples that could really, I could really say with confidence are incitement to hatred in, in speech in general just uh, over the last few years. Since we talk a lot about incitement to hatred, I really wanted to find a good example. And to me, you know, uh, Mr. Macron's words are, are undeniably incitement to hatred, I think. Um, J'ai très envie de les émerder. Um, I mean, to me, coming from a president in public, uh, how, is that, how, how is that not incitement to hatred? and resentment and bitterness against the unvaccinated. Um, it's as if they'd committed a crime or they had, you know, uh, committed a terror act, an act of terror. Uh, what did they do? So, so what exactly did they do? These people basically uh, decided to decline a vaccine that was recommended by the state. That's what they did. Um, and. Okay, so even if the vaccine had been 100% safe, 100% effective, you know, uh, not problematic in any way, uh, that is their right to decline that medication. If the vaccine was so good, so reliable, so safe, then you would not need to force people to take it. If it was such a great vaccine, then people would be lining up to take it voluntarily. Um, if people need it, people are not stupid. You know, people, when something's really good for their health, people can understand that. Um, the reason people often declined the vaccine was because, well, there were a number of reasons. One is we didn't have full data on its efficacy and on its safety, long term safety, when it was being rolled out. Um, it, was, uh, it was rolled out under emergency use authorization. And, um, and so with, it was a very accelerated process and it was a very novel technology that was used in the vaccine, in some of the vaccines. And I think the point is we're only now beginning to see a more complete picture of what the potential harms of the vaccines are and, what, and what, how to do a good risk-benefit analysis. But uh, it was very early, in the, early on, it was too early on to have a very clear picture when these vaccines are being rolled out, of what the appropriate risk-benefit analysis was. It, was. it was a point that was uncertain. Many people had been exposed to the virus and they knew that that conferred upon them natural immunity. And then every person is different. But I mean, you could have a 20-year-old or 25-year-old or a 30-year-old who's at the peak of their health and who knows that they're extremely low risk from COVID-19. They also know that they're at some risk from the vaccine. How do they balance the risks? This is a question that has to come down to individual choice in consultation with your doctor. That's called individualized medicine. And we've just basically thrown individualized medicine out the window, thrown informed consent out the window, uh, leading to bad choices because citizens who act under stress, under constraint, under coercion, will not make the best choices for their health. How many people do I know? How many people do you know and do the readers know who got the COVID vaccines so that they could travel without testing? I know lots of people who, who got the, including family, who got the COVID vaccines so as they could travel without paying every time they had to travel paying for tests. Um, is that a good reason to take a vaccine? Of course it's not. Of course it's not. The government forced people to use bad reasoning in their own health choices. The next point is the heavy-handed use of censorship. And um, it was a very important ingredient 
of whatever happened in the past two years, uh, mm. because dissenting views uh, did exist, uh, but they were actively silenced. And I, I think um, I saw evidence of it on many different levels uh, on social media. That was obvious. Um, but also when it comes to uh, journals, uh, scientific journals, and even in a few cases, preprint servers, um, hmm. without really uh, giving uh, an objective reason, uh, refused to, to host papers. Um, so what were your own, uh, what, what was most shocking to you in terms of uh, censorship uh, in the past two years? I think what was most shocking to me was how shameless it was and how reactionary the censorship was. Um, I mean, you could imagine censorship being applied to very extreme forms of speech, perhaps uh, certain forms of hate, you know, hate speech, um, maybe. Uh, or an example that I gave in one of my blogs, I think if somebody said that if you have a cup of tea, if you drink lots of tea, you will cure your COVID. Um, again, I, I, I'm, not, I'm not saying that I think that should be censored. But I would say that that's a view that is so obviously not part of scientific consensus that if it was censored, then at least you could say that it has some form of scientific legitimation in the sense that it, it, it doesn't appear to be advocated by any serious scientist or almost no serious scientist would advocate that drinking tea will cure COVID. Um, but, uh, or another example, how to make, another example that maybe is uh, more clear cut, how to make a bomb. You know, I mean, YouTube could take that down and probably should take that down because it's directly connected with intent to harm. Um, and it can facilitate, you know, this in intent to harm. So if, if people had been censored for saying things that were basically directly contradicted by virtually every scientist, then I would still have disagreed with the censorship, but I would have thought at least they've sort of looked for an excuse to do it, like a scientific excuse to do the censorship. But what happened actually was quite different. It was that certain opinions that were politically contested and scientifically contested were simply uh, suppressed or censored uh, because some people disagreed with them. And in a very reactionary way, I mean, uh, I mean, the questioning of the vaccines, for example, I mean, you would think that these vaccines were like paracetamol or something, and that, you know, their effects were known for generations and that, you know, there were completely settled knowledge about all of their harms and so on. You would think that by the way people were censored, by just suggesting that there might be some adverse harms from the vaccines or people who came forward with stories about their adverse effects. Um, Facebook groups were shut down uh, because they represented the lives of people who had been affected by the vaccines. It was just really egregious forms of censorship. I mean, the point is not whether the censor agrees with me. I mean, if, if that was the point, then Twitter should be censoring all the time. Uh, they should be censoring every political opinion they might disagree with. The point is that these platforms present themselves as open platforms for an open debate and for political debate and so on. Um, and so they're dishonest and they're disingenuous in the way they present themselves. And, 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 and there's an argument to be made that they're in breach of, of contract because there's a reasonable expectation when you enter the platform that political speech, broadly speaking, will be tolerated. Um, so, and there have been some successful cases taken against Twitter. That's, but that's kind of, that would take us off too far. Um, and then I put that same post on, um, 
Medium. Medium is a, it's a blog platform. I thought, okay, I'm off Twitter. A friend recommended Medium to me. So I thought, I'm going to open up an account at Medium. So I republished, I republished a post um, that I, I actually put a post on Medium in which I explained what had happened to me on Twitter. And within 24 hours, the COVID safety team had taken it down. So I sent in a complaint. They never got back to me. Um, and then I said, flip's sake, I mean, I can't even report on my censorship in Medium. So at that point, I went to Substack. And I've been happy ever since in Substack because they do not censor. They, they would only censor things that were very extreme. So they don't censor political speech and they don't censor scientific commentary and political commentary. So I'm quite happy on Substack where I'm, I feel like I've, well, for now, I, seem, I feel like I'm immune to censorship because my opinions are not extreme enough to merit censorship. I'm not, I'm not publishing pornography sites and so on, you know. Um, I mean, honestly, it's crazy to me that an academic who engages in political commentary would have their, their commentary flagged and taken down in the name of the public interest. That, that is like something out of communist China. Yeah, I think the most shocking examples to me were when, in several instances, um, a scientist talking about a peer-reviewed published paper was censored, uh, mm. was flagged uh, as a content that you couldn't comment on or, or share further on Twitter, for instance. At one time, I think um, a, a link to a published scientific paper was flagged as misleading and you could not share it. Um, and of course, the, the case of the support groups for the vaccine injured, um, because it's really uh, very important to their health being able to talk about what happened to them and exchange ideas and uh, um, addresses of doctors uh, who can help. Uh, it really, to, to remove a support network and big mm. ones, like uh, I think one was closed and it, it had more than 200,000 members uh, on Facebook. Uh, mm. It's extremely violent um, mm. and very detrimental to, to, to the health of the members. The next point is the relentless use of mass media to inculcate fear and terror. And we, we did uh, mention, you did mention at the beginning, um, the predictions uh, of Ferguson, uh, which were widely reported by the media at the time. But uh, I think something changed uh, since you, you wrote that, uh, in that some uh, government officials in the UK uh, or members of the task force, I don't know the, the exact name, they actually mm -hmm. acknowledged that they did use um, fear and uh, they had some sort of remorse, uh, I think, Correct. over it. Or, yeah. Yes, it's uh, the SAGE, um, SAGE committee, which was devoted to yeah. developing scientific um, advice for the government, for the UK government during the pandemic. Um, and well, that committee, there was a subcommittee that was devoted to issues of nudging the public. And um, a number of their members anonymously came forward to, I think it was the, the, the Telegraph, they, re they reported their, their um, basically what they said. So these members of the nudging, the nudge committee, I don't remember what its exact name was, but it was to do with influencing public behavior. Uh, they said that they regretted um, the decision to use fear as a tool and um, to essentially hype up fear, to ramp it up. And, and so there was a conscious decision to use techniques um, of emotional manipulation to make people feel more afraid. And... Um, I mean, a classic example is the national, I think it's the NHS uh, in the UK, their health authority put out ad ads on TV with pictures of dying patients, you know, uh, that were being intubated. And they were saying, um, you know, they were saying something to the effect of 
can you live with yourself if you if you send this patient if you if you make this patient die if you're responsible for this death of this patient or putting this patient in the hospital so they tried to attribute guilt to people for their behavior and made very speculative and very questionable connections between personal behavior and hospital outcomes um so the idea was that if you break some of these absurd rules that were very draconian and intrusive that you would then be responsible for putting people in the hospital right that's the kind of logic that they wanted to use and 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 actually human behavior is so complex in its its effects that um that the idea that you know me sitting at home i'm preventing people from going to the hospital is 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 such an incro- incredibly naive simplification i mean me sitting at home could be me earning less money um therefore affecting the economy adversely it could also be me not helping someone who needs support and therefore feels lonely and is going to commit suicide there are, or or will simply enter into a deep depression it could be me sitting at home and neglecting my parents who are in a nursing home um and therefore their health going getting even worse because they feel neglected and and lonely uh human behavior you know human action is not something that we can just make a mathematical mathematical formula to control and uh we have to make prudential choices but there was this this idea that a virus a tiny virus its long-term project trajectory can be manipulated and micromanaged by sitting at home and watching tv this this is just ridiculous it is ridiculous when you think about it and you think it through we're going to have to come out of our homes eventually probably soon because society can't be can't just keep going with everybody sitting at home watching tv so uh, so eventually people came out and of course the virus then moved and in fact I, it probably moved around even more aggressively in some cases because there'd be this artificial suppression of so, social life for so long that people had not been able to gradually build immunity in the population um so anyway these naive kind of assumptions contributed to this this kind of behavior but fear was a huge um factor and i mean just as an example of how this fear played out in where i live in spain was that the government mandated the wearing of masks in all outdoor urban settings um at one point they even said that it, they should be worn when you're even hiking or walking um in the countryside it was so ridiculous whenever there's anyone around you should have a mask on and and i noticed how it changed the people's mindset i noticed that when masks became obligatory and everybody had to wear them in the street uh i noticed the atmosphere was much more charged with fear and people were very nervous about even being around anybody and if you if you lowered your mask people would be sort of like would veering around in a park and taking a long way around to avoid you this kind of situation and giving you dirty looks because you lowered your mask in a park uh this kind of behavior is irrational i want to say it very clearly it's it's not rational behavior but it is rational if if you believe prop the propaganda being fed to you it becomes sort of rational within that self-contained universe of absurd beliefs right beliefs that me walking through a park i'm by helping a a mask over my nose i'm preventing the spread of virus in a park you know that's not scientifically supported belief but if enough people believe it then it becomes the common sense of the people yeah the time is is right to really um check whether it worked or not even with all those abuses were they useful um and we have the example of sweden Sweden is is okay. <laughs> It's yes. actually in a better position than most other European countries in terms of all-cause mortality uh, two years later. Um, yes. Which would tend to prove that indeed uh, those policies that were deemed absolutely necessary were actually abuses, abusive 
uh, and did not result in a net benefit for, for the population. I wanted to talk, uh, because we still haven't talked about w- the watering down of civil rights. So what what did you personally mean by that watering down of civil rights? And what are some, some examples of it? So what I mean is, I'll start by saying that the whole point behind of civil rights is that we um, we explicitly name certain um, entitlements, and we say that those entitlements are robust against utilitarian calculations. So, in other words, uh, we have certain rights, and these rights cannot be simply swept aside because. There's a new there's a new head of department at the, in the government who just a new minister of health who just decided that they wanted to introduce a new policy and therefore they just erased our rights. Um, rights are robust; they're, they're they're meant to be robust against political change and 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 so on and policy making. Um, and so the change that happened was that what were considered to be basic rights uh, in Western democracies were considered as dispensable in the face of policy changes, basically, that were made on an ad hoc basis by governments in response to a perceived or real emergency. Um, it doesn't matter if the emergency was real or, or if it was exaggerated. The, the, real, the point I want to make, really, is that, um, is that, first of all, there's a reason why we have civil rights and it's to protect us against political abuses in many ways, right? I think that's important and uh, kind of exploitative or abusive behavior by politicians um, because they're not angels. And we know that. And that's why we have civil rights, to protect us. And, and the second point is that it was widely assumed by public officials and by some journalists as well, quite a few, that you know, uh, watering down or in some cases suspending civil rights would be a smart way to control an infectious disease. So this was also a really fallacious kind of form of reasoning. First, we're saying that civil rights can we be just tossed aside because somebody decided it was better for the common good to do so. And second, we're trusting that these experts will make the right calls and will understand all of the causality involved. And clearly, they screwed up big time during the pandemic. No, it's a pretty grim picture, because as you said at the beginning, it's it's a little it's slowed down. Certainly, it's been reversed uh, in in uh, some aspects. Mm. But you get the feeling that the infrastructure is still in place, and yes. it can be reactivated if a, a good reason uh, appears. Um, so it's not really uh, reassuring in any way. So maybe we could finish uh, by talking about uh, the actions, the tools, the initiatives that could prevent the situation from further deteriorating or, or um, from uh, staying, I mean, in, in that uh, unsatisfying place that we are right now with more centralized power, more surveillance and control, more censorship censorship, and less respect for civil rights. So, well, what, what are your suggestions and your, your, your hopes? Yes. Well, um, you're right. We've painted a somewhat dark picture of our predicament. And um, we have to be realistic and accept that there are tendencies towards uh, despotism, towards a more controlling, top-down type of regime, similar to China's um, communist regime, a kind of mix between communism and capitalism, a weird mix. But um, I think... I always, when I'm asked this question, I tend to always go back to uh, the point about the mind. Um, And I think about The Matrix, the the movie The Matrix, that what was the source of their enslavement? I I mean, the fundamental source of their enslavement was the fact that their minds were integrated into a computer matrix that made them think certain things, made them perceive the world a certain way. And... So as long as our imagination is cramped, as long as we see the world through the lens that the propaganda artists uh, want us to see see it through, uh, the lens that governments want us to see it through, 
then we're sort of stuck. Um, we're stuck because uh, because unless you can imagine a new possibility, you can never bring it about. And that's why the expansion of the imagination is so important. And the moral imagination, the social imagination. And I think this is why I think education is so important. And I think both self-education and the education of others and educating ourselves together in the principles of freedom and the principles of free society. Um, I think trying to get our intellects in, you know, intellectual furniture in order, you know, to try to be able to see things with a bit more clarity um, and a bit more courage. Uh, I think seeing things right is half the battle and uh, both for ourselves and for those around us. So that's why I really believe that education is so important, whether it be formal education in schools or informal education, maybe through our everyday interactions with our friends and colleagues, you know, being, not being afraid to express ourselves and our opinions, um, but also to be humble and willing to learn from others. Um, and, and so then once we have our mind a little bit sharper, then we're in a better position to think about how to cooperate with others to build um, civil society structures that are more resistant to tyranny. And that's, in, in that sense, I think networking, networking and building connections with like-minded citizens is very important. And um, Alexei de Tocqueville uh, spoke a lot about the importance of civil society structures. And he basically said that in an age, a democratic era, when you no longer have aristocrats and nobles and princes to protect us, we're just a naked individual before the state. And so he says the only way to overcome this vulnerability is to build the equivalent of princes and aristocrats in a democratic era, which are corporate bodies of citizens who can act together and, and, and can create more power together. Um, and so uh, I can't say to citizens, I cannot say to citizens, um, you have to build this exact initiative, you have to build this structure, because that's a matter of prudence. But you can think about how communities support each other, both online and offline, you know, just by being there for each other and witnessing to the truth about their own freedom and their dignity to each other um, is a really important step. And then once those structures are in place, then civil disobedience protests become much easier because once you have the infrastructure, you know, that's independent from the government, then you can actually activate it at short notice. But we have, we have to take the opportunity and the lull that we have from oppression to build those structures and to put them in place with those around us to find the expertise and the knowledge. Uh, the last thing maybe to say is uh, regarding um, changes, decentralization or polycentricity, having multiple centers of governance and of self-government is really important. Now, the France is one of the most centralized states in the world, probably, uh, from what I've understood um, administratively and governmentally. Um, and so if you ask a French person, what can I do about decentralization? Then I would say, uh, don't be too disheartened by the centralized structures, because the reality is that the Napoleonic state, it doesn't matter how Napoleonic it is, um, cannot reach your living room uh, if you don't let it. It can't reach your local club, your local association, if you don't let it. Um, uh, if it wants to help you, maybe with some caution, you can accept some of its help. Um, but you really, I think you can build these decentralized structures de facto on the ground without being integrated into the centralized state. And, um, I think French people understand as well as any, uh, the importance of civil society, an independent civil society. French people do have a kind of intuitive understanding of that, partly because they live in such a centralized state which I think helps them understand that you, if you don't 
build something deliberately, you will get sucked into those centralized stru- structures. And um, and the last thing is hope. Uh, I think it's tempting to give in to despair or discouragement when we see the direction that governments have been going. But I think there are also signs of hope. There are also movements, incipient movements in the United Kingdom, in France, in the United States, in Ireland, in Spain, that may be small, they may be a minority movements, but uh, they can help us live a better life and live more freely. And we should never, we shouldn't wait for the perfect world in which governments are all doing the right thing. I think we shouldn't give into that temptation to, to wait, wait things out until things just become better. We're always going to live in a messy world where there's, a lot of, there's some corruption at the political level. And I think we have to, in spite of that corruption, we have to, um, we have to construct something positive with our fellow citizens gradually and patiently um, over time. Just as the Poles did under communism, um, they built very strong civil society structures in their labor unions, in underground theater, and in the Catholic Church in Poland. And they prepared those infrastructures to overthrow communism. Um, And I think the same we can do when we're living under illiberal regimes.